Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. It would appear the sun has set on yet another corner of the British Empire. This one far down in the South Atlantic. Argentina today invaded and seized the Falkland Islands, which have been under British rule for nearly 150 years. This typical Watford ball hooked forward as soon as possible and quite often as far as possible. Armstrong leaving it for John Barnes to go through. Corner. Shot was deflected. I mean, a lot of people say it must be a hell of a drag uh, with scheduled airlines and airports and everything like that. Is that the way you do it, or...? Sometimes. I got a private jet today because there were six or seven of us and um, members of the band wanted to come over and see the game. But um, it's, um, I don't mind paying out for a private jet if we play like that, you know. Oh, Gillard doing well. Feeding Bass on the little chip there to the far side. Curry's coming in. Oh, yes! It's there in the end for Stanford. Now, a lot of has been said this season about the QPR pitch. Yeah. And uh, what a great advantage it's been. Do you think it has? Um, I think we've got an advantage with playing it more than uh, the opposition do. Uh, but then again, I think we've got a disadvantage away from home. I think we've found that's been a bit of a disadvantage. We're out of chop and change every week. So if that is problems, anything that you have new, of course you're going you're to have problems with. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson and with us is Rob Draper, the Chief Football Writer at the Mail on Sunday. Rob, a pleasure to have you on the pod. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> so today we go back to the 1981-82 season in the very old second division. Watford played QPR, they won 4-0 on this occasion. Rob, why have you chosen this game? I know it doesn't immediately strike you as, as one of the great games in history, but um, I'm choosing it because it represents something um, 
specific to me, but it's something that I think is um, bigger in English football culture, which we'll probably talk about. I mean, it was yeah, QPR v Watford um, at Vicarage Road, so Watford's ground. And I'm a, I was a QPR fan. I think it's about the third or fourth game I ever went to. Um, and so for context, I, I, I went to school in Watford. I was born in Watford in that hospital next to the, the stadium. Um, but my dad was from East Acton originally. So we were QPR fans sort of um, in Watford. And um, I just started secondary school. So um, Watford were going through the divisions. It's the Elton John, Graham Taylor era. It's very exciting, actually, to, to, to be in Watford at that time. And, and they were a big part of the town. Um, but obviously for me, it was a bit bit difficult um, and I sort of went to this game I'd been to a couple of QPR Watford games I think QPR had won one and Watford had won the the next one so I was kind of used to the ebb and flow of football but this was a, a really dismal night because um, it was it was in March a postponed game from Christmas it was I remember now and I was chatting to some friends who went um, it was pouring with rain that night it was a miserable night and QPR were 2-0 down in about um, the first 15 minutes and, and lost 4-0 and I was sort of you know the bottom lip was wobbling by the end <laughs> and I remember my we were with some friends who were saying oh come on we might as well go when the third went in I think it was in sort of about um 80th minute or so and uh, I was refusing to go because I um you know I thought no you've got to support your side right to the end and the whole QPR <laughs> end had, had had wisely emptied out and and left the rookery and and were all heading home and I I sat it through to the end and the fourth went in and I was very sort of I don't think I actually cried but I was probably um, welling up a little bit and of course I got it the next day at school I was absolutely hammered um, but it, but why it's interesting when you go through the team sheets of some really quality players in, in what was the old second division and but basically because it was Graham Taylor against Terry Venables and it, it was it was a real it was a real maybe feuds too strong but it was a real rivalry between those two young managers and I I it's something Jonathan and I have talked about previously it's something I believe it it, it really. Um, with future of English football over the next 20 years be defined by these two managers. And, and in that point, there was a lot of sniping after this game in the press conference um, and a lot of um, bitterness sort of um, instilled um, at that point in the rivalry between the two managers. Yeah, Jonathan, as Rob says, I mean, there, there are some big names associated with these two teams at this time and who played in this match, Venables and Taylor, the, the managers. Um, but you look down the team sheet, Clive Allen, you know, John Gregory, Terry Fennick, um, Luther Blizzard, John Barnes, you know, all in there. I mean, it's, it's not too shabby, Jonathan, is it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess partly the reason we know that QPR side is because is they reached the cup final that season, uh, which is, you know, that, that cup final when they, well, they drew a Tottenham and lost in the replay. That, 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 that 1-1 draw in, in, the, in the first game, is the first match that I remember watching on TV. Oh, I feel very uh, sorry for you then. It was not a great match. It was not a great match, was it? I, I, I had nothing to compare it to. I was five years old. <laughs> um, I mean, any game which starts with Terry Fennick at right back, you, you, you've got questions immediately. But at five years old, I didn't. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, both teams were in the first division uh, you know, uh, within a couple of years. Uh, and I, you know, I think it is fascinating. It's, it's, it's sort of, I know, I know Rob's done his best to try and change this, but it is strange. You've got this great untold story of of a of a rivalry between two totally opposite schools of football happening in our second division. Mm. And and Rob's right. This does, in in a sense, this is the the underlying tension which shapes the next. I think you can say you know fifteen years of, of English football. 
uh, you know, exemplified by the fact that Venables replaces Taylor as yeah. as England manager. I mean, if you if you go for obviously Pete Venables, I think is is the Holland when when he takes over from Graham, and it's been a disaster with with Graham. Although they came very close to qualifying that World Cup, didn't they? But it was you know very some mm-hmm. very bad football, and it it was perceived as disaster. That that was Graham's absolute low point, and Terry. Um, took over and I think the game against Holland, which I was also at, the 4-1 game at Wembley, is probably peak Terry Venables where his his philosophy of football was at his absolute, that's how he wanted football to be played, he, he, to beat the Dutch almost at their own game. Um, but but Venables' career was uh, was really fascinating. For me as a 12-year-old, I was stuck, you know, unbeknownst to me, I was stuck in the middle of this ideological Battle and the only two managers I, I really listened to. We got the Wofford Observer every week, um, and I've spoken to Ollie Phillips, who was their correspondent then, and, and we'll come on to some of the stories he told me um, later because I spoke to him last week, and he was fascinating on this rivalry, and it confirmed everything. In fact, it was probably worse than I imagined it had been. Um, and um, so I'd read Graham Taylor's words, and of course I'd read everything from Venables, and and so I was sort of absorbing all the uh, ideas, and of course I was on the the Venable side um, of sort of passing football. But but with retrospect, I've I've come to sort of really appreciate Graham Taylor partly because as you know, uh, with Jonathan, we got to know him when he was um, a Five Live uh, correspondent and, and doing all those England games, and obviously I said he he knew I came from Watford, and so we'd talk through all the Watford. Uh, uh, years and I, I had a understanding that I'd go and see Watford a lot because my brother and my friends were Watford fans. So I went to the cup final and they got to the cup final. So I knew knew their whole um, sort of um, history as well. And I, I think I think you could even argue it plays out in the sort of Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp sort of rivalry or tactical schools now a little bit because um, so Ollie Phillips said he was talking to Glenn Roder when he became. Watford manager and, and Glenn was obviously playing that night in this game and Glenn was the stalwart of the his QPR captain at that stage and a real Venables man and apparently Glenn said to him that uh, the thing about Watford and this will really resonate the thing about Watford was um, we hated playing against them because um, as soon as he got the ball as a centre half Venables wanted to play it out wanted to play from the back and he said, we knew you'd be on us. He said, we knew that Luther Blissett and Ross Jenkins and Barnes had all be pressing us and right on top of us. And we couldn't play out like we wanted to. And hence, that this season, they, QPR also lost 4-1 at Vicarage Road in the League Cup. So it was really kind of a period where, where Taylor absolutely had Venables' number. And the, the game Venables wanted to play, which was slow pass it out from the back. Graham just wouldn't let him do it. And I think that really resonates with the sort of, you know, Jurgen Klopp just not letting um, Pep Guardiola uh, pass out from the back. You know, they just won't let them do it and force them into mistakes. And and these debates work. I think often English football is caricatured as like, well, no one ever thinks about the game. And, um, you know, we had a sort of 20-year period until recently where we didn't have any great coaches. But we had some really interesting good coaches. And and we did mention, we should mention that David Pleat was part of this little triumvirate just at the road at Luton. You know, there's a real um, convergence of three really bright young managers, both in the Venables and Taylors were both in the Thirties um, at this stage, mid thirties, who were really toying with all the ideas, and I think Graham was one of the first in English football game, English football that really worked out how how to press high and how to put people under pressure. But Jonathan may take some issue with that, with his his deeper knowledge. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, I would agree with that entirely. I, mean, I, th- I think it's probably worth sort of sketching in some of the background. So you know, th- this is slightly over neat, but. Uh, the, the point about about um, 
this rivalry being, in a sense, replicated by the by the Klopp Guardiola rivalry, I, I think is absolutely apt. In that, if you think you have a a sort of great tradition of passing football, which starts at Queens Park way back in the eighteen seventies, then Bob McCall takes that to Newcastle, and then at Newcastle he plays alongside Peter McWilliam. Peter McWilliam goes to Tottenham, becomes this incredibly. This in the nineteen twenties, way ahead of his time as manager of, of Tottenham. And you know he starts setting up feeder clubs, and you know he's just got these ideas that are, are so far ahead of his time. It's you know, it, it doesn't you know it it feels like you're reading something in the sixties or seventies. Uh, and three of the players who he brought up through the youth ranks there go on to become hugely significant in the history of Tottenham. Uh, so Arthur Rowe, who, who leads them to the league title in fifty one, uh, Vic Buckingham. Uh, he goes on to become West Brom manager, where he, he manages Bobby Robson, and then, of course, goes on to Ajax and Barcelona, where he's hugely influential over Reinus Michaels, gives Johan Cruyff his debut, uh, and also Bill Nicholson, who leads Tottenham to, to the double in, in, in 61. And that's where you get the link, uh, you know, both with Guardiola, in that uh, Buckingham has given Cruyff his debut and Cruyff gives Guardiola his debut, and there's that line of thought evolving all the time. But it's, just, it's the same basic principles of if you've got the ball, you're controlling the game, and that's what you want to do. And Venables, of course, played for Nicholson's uh, Tottenham side, in, not not in '61, but but the side that won the cup in '65 and and through the '60s. So Venables is of that school, and that's clearly one of the reasons why Barcelona give him the job in what in '84, when the only two teams he's managed before that are, are Palace and QPR. And you know, one of the things we we often talk about in this podcast, we always seem to come back to it, is Barcelona's appointments often seem quite weird, in that they don't necessarily go go for people who've who've won a huge amount, they go for people who play in, in what they see as being the right way. And Venables is very much of that of that school. Taylor was, yeah, and as, as Rob knows, Taylor, Graham was a, a lovely, lovely man who really believed in the value of the press. And, and his dad had been a journalist. I think that's one of the reasons, which is one of the reasons why he allows documentary cameras in when he's England manager. Yeah, he just sees a value in, in creating a document of what it was like to be England manager. And he probably would have wished it had you know, come out slightly differently, but he, he fundamentally believed that that project was a worthwhile project. And he would talk for hours. And he was incredibly good at explaining his thinking, his ideas, where they came from. And he said that he'd read an FA coaching manual. This is some point, I guess, when he's at Grimsby in the early 70s. Um, or, or maybe he went to Lincoln, didn't he, after Grimsby? So it might be when he was at Lincoln. Um that he'd read and, and, and yeah, the FA produced a sort of coaching uh, magazine, I guess, rather than a manual. And he'd read an article by Victor Maslow. Now, Victor Maslow had been a, a player at Torpedo Moscow. He'd managed Torpedo Moscow. Then he'd gone on and had great success at Dynamo Kiev, where he'd really sort of invented pressing in, in the modern sense of the term. And Taylor had read this, and it chimed with the thought he'd always had, which is, when there's 10 minutes to go and you're 1-0 down, what do you do? You put the ball in the corner and you chase it and you try and get it back as high of the pitch as possible. So why not? Why are you only doing that in the last 10 minutes? Why not do that in the last half hour? Why not do that from the start? If you're fit enough to do it, do it from the start. And so that's what he begins to do. And he's, you know, he, he, he sort of tells the story of, of having some success with this at, at Lincoln and then he, he gets the Watford job in 77. And, he, you know, he starts doing this and he can't quite believe this is all there is to it. Yeah, you know, he, he and he, you know, he he sort of thinks I'm going to get found out eventually, and yeah, they just keep getting promoted. So yeah, they they went up in in '78 from the fourth to the third. They went up in '79 from the third to the second. 
They finished 18th in the second division in 1980. They finished 9th in 81. They got promoted 81-2 this season. And then the next season, 82-3, they finished second in the league. And the following season, they get to the cup final. And Graham said the first time he really felt they'd been found out, that this idea of just pop the ball in the corner, pin it in there, get the ball back, and you'll get chances, was in the UEFA Cup in, in 83-4. They, I think they beat Kaiserslautern in the first round, Levski Sofia in the second round, and they got beat 3-1 in Germany, but won 3-0, I think. I think that's right, uh, at Vicarage Road. Uh, but he said it was the third round they played Sparta Prague, and that was the first time they met centre-backs who said, all right, run at us, that's fine. We're skillful enough and we're good enough on the ball. We'll just take a step to the side and play the pass. And Sparta Prague, after, what, seven years, were the first team who were able to pass through them. Mm. And yeah, what was fascinating to me talking to him, you know, 15, no, 20 years later, uh, was was this idea that he felt this was somehow not quite right. He, he sort of, it can't be this simple. And he was waiting to be found out and he never was. So that, that those are the two schools that Benables comes from and Taylor comes from, two very different schools. And of course, the link with Klopp, to briefly tie it back into that, is that Maslow is a huge influence over Valery Lobanovsky. Lobanovsky takes Dynamo Kiev in the early 80s to train in the winter near Stuttgart. And uh, that's where Ralph Rangnick, uh, who was player manager, I think a sixth flight, maybe a seventh flight side, uh, near Stuttgart, played against Lobanovsky's Dynamo and is suddenly you know, bowled over by, the, by by pressing. And Rangnick starts to introduce that, which is what leads to the German school of pressing, which Klopp is a, is a part of. Well, I, I was, I was, what I was, when I was researching this, I was wondering how did, I was thinking Wolfgang Frank, who Klopp's mentor, you know, must have um, happened upon these ideas at about the same time as, as Graham Taylor. Interestingly, I don't think there is a coincidence here, but Mainz and Watford are, are twin towns, but there's a nice symmetry in that. And I think just for younger listeners, people to, to understand Watford's rise in this period, how tactically innovative they were and how much better they were than everyone else they were beating teams like Southampton who were a Premier League side or a top flight side then 7-1 in a cup tie in I think Watford were in the second division or, or at the time or possibly in the lower end of the first division but they absolutely you know blitzing teams in that sort of you know it was a game almost like a gaming press and like when a Klopp side really gets going and you can't stop them and, and they, they were they were totally extraordinary the interesting thing on the bus, Rob, 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 yeah. that 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 seven one. I think I think I'm right in saying. I think that was the second leg of a League Cup tie, where they lost the first leg four nil, and they took them yes. back to the Road. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and yeah. they were five one up. Yeah. It was five one after ninety minutes, and then they scored two scored more two, extra yeah, time. Yeah, two were an extra time. Yeah, that that is true. Um, so I had. But, it, it, that, but I, yeah, I think that was were... a particular. I think that was a particular example of of how they play because it was. Yeah, they've got a four-goal deficit to overcome, so they were right on the front foot from the start. And I, I think what you see with Watford around that time is they get hammered by some teams, and then they hammer some teams. So they, you yeah. know, they beat Sunderland eight 0 in eighty three four. I think they had two five threes against Notts County, um, they, but they were capable of getting beat five six 0 as well. It was a, it was a very sort of high risk strategy. When it worked, they could batter teams, so, but equally they were leaving space in behind them and they could get battered. So what and I, that's think, game, I think I think the league- both, yeah both happened. So there's also an interesting link to, I think Guardiola comes into this because I think Guardiola for me is the one who combines sort of the Cruyff school with, with a more intense energy and obviously pressing. I mean, it was always pressing with Cruyff, but, but Pep definitely gave it much, much more energy and, and running than, than, than before. And I think what, what people don't appreciate, I, I was a big Venables man and I've got a QPR man, but actually a lot of the football was quite, um, 
can I, can I say this boring? Um, in that QPR came up on an offside trap, and and they played basically they 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 won almost all their games away from home one nil because they'd go one nil up and then they'd just play a really rigid offside trap. And interestingly, in terms of mentors, George Graham was the youth team coach at QPR and took all his ideas. Well, so not so much the passing, but the offside trap he obviously took um, from Venables and took it to Arsenal in that famous side. But uh, QPR literally booed off everywhere they went. And speaking to Mike Waters from the Mirror, who's a colleague of ours, he was saying, oh, I remember that QPR team. They were really boring. <laughs> you know, they, they caught us out a few times the offside trap, but eventually worked them out. And, and there was a real antipathy when, when Belgium used the offside trap against England to beat them in Euro, sorry, in a draw and game in Euro 1980. I remember the commentator was like, this was almost like it was um, cheating that Belgium were using offside trap. And English football didn't do this. And Venables was one of the first to really have a rigid offside trap, a really well-drilled offside trap into his game. But actually, there was a lot of passing back to the keeper and there was a lot of just keeping the ball. And I suppose some of the criticism we saw was <laughs> Spain's tiki-taka side in, um, when was that, Euro 2008, wasn't it? When people started well, saying... Well, World Cup 2010. Uh, well, the world, yeah. 2010. And yeah. 2008, I think, yeah. was less bad than two, People saying, oh, it's going to be boring now. They just go sideways. Because I think, obviously, the Spain team were, were, were never quite a carbon copy of Barcelona, who are more energetic. That it, you know, a lot of people were like that, and and um, we'll maybe get onto this in the second half. But a lot of the Fleet Street press were with Venables, but Graham couldn't understand it. Felt really isolated. Felt he felt he was playing the attacking football, and um, and what QPR were doing was more boring. So that whole debate about oh, passing can be a bit boring, and you're just going sideways was was really present within all of this at the same time. All right, chaps, let's go for a quick break, and after which we'll talk more about some of the uh, more attacking football these two sides play. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back, everybody, to Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. Yeah, Jonathan, so as, as, as Rob was saying there, some of the press, or perhaps most of the press, were with QPR and Venables rather than Graham Taylor and Watford. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think that, you know, there's a fundamental point in what, in what Rob's just said there, that, that it's a, a fundamental confusion. And maybe now we're, we're a bit more sort of wise to this because, uh, you know, uh, tactics are so much more part of the discourse. I think we understand some of the subtleties of it a bit more. But back in the sort of you know, late 80s, early 90s, there was definitely a perception that passing football was attacking football and you know, long ball football somehow wasn't. But it, it, you know, the, the, two, the two are completely different things. And, and you know, this point of the offside trap, you know, the offside trap has always been absolutely essential to, to total football. If, if you use total football in its strict sense you know, of the way Ajax used it in the early 70s, where the Dutch used it in the early 70s. And, and, and that's because it's... If you read David Winner's book, if you read Brilliant Orange, it goes in a huge amount of detail about how this is part of the Dutch psyche. But on a very fundamental level, it's about when you have the ball, you make the pitch as big as possible. Your, your defenders drop back, your, your wingers go wide, you, you, and you, you try and create as much space as you can. When you don't have the ball, you make it as compact as possible. Uh, you, you know, you, you play a narrow team. Uh, you know, Rigo Saki said there should never be more than 25 yards, 25 metres between your centre-forward and your centre-back, and you try and squeeze the game to that tiny space. And, of course, the way you do that is by playing an aggressive offside trap. So people have this sort of romantic notion of what total football was. It was oh, it's about players in a genuine position. It's about passing forward. Yes, it is about that. But the, the platform that enables you to do that is this aggressive offside trap. And you know, the, the story I always come back to, the, the, the moment when, when you know, personally, I, I sort of first really understood how radical an idea that was, uh, I interviewed Mourinho Perez, who was Brazil's captain in the 74 World Cup. And Brazil had, had been involved in a, a brilliant game in the second group phase against the Dutch, and they lost 2-0, and had been incredibly violent. I think there were two players sent off. Uh, Mourinho Perez had, had uh, laid out Johan Neskens with a punch him on the jaw. And then he gets signed by Barcelona. So, you know, he's then playing with Neskens, and they, they, you know, they made up. But he said the first training session under, under, under Michels, um, he, he knows they've got a press. And this is something that's very alien to him. And he said, you know, in Brazil, this was known as the donkey line because they just thought it was so stupid. If you pushed high, the opposition just played the ball in behind you and they had loads of space to run onto. But of course, if you coordinate it, if you, you, know, if you attack the man with the ball and make him sort of hurry the pass and you're pushing up with the offside trap, measuring that pass becomes almost impossible. And so he, you know, he had to learn how to do that. And he said the first time he did it, he thought, right, I've got it. And he finds Mikkel still standing there screaming at him, saying, yes, you've pushed out. Now go and chase the ball. And so the, the aggression, the, the, sort of the, the idea that the way you defend is to, is, you know, is to advance is such a sort of counterintuitive thing, if, you, if that's not the tradition you've been brought up in, um, that, that you know, it is a very radical thing. And that, that's why I think the, in, in Britain in the 1970s, we maybe, as a, as a wider footballing public, didn't understand the offside trap part of that. Tell you Venables then takes up to QPR and uses it in a sort of in the way we would subsequently see Spain using it. 
And then I think um, if we're but talk- you know, this point about sorry, just one yeah. more point on, on this, this idea of what is attacking. You know, one of the reasons I think Louis van Gaal was so so mocked in in England is that for him attacking is having the ball, and it's got nothing to do with whether you're creating chances. It's do we have the ball? So he saw Manchester United as playing attacking football. Everybody else saw them having the ball and never actually creating anything because they kept on going sideways and it was very risk averse. And so attacking is a very slippery word in football. It doesn't just mean having the ball. It doesn't just mean passing. But maybe it doesn't just mean putting the ball in the box either. It, it, it can be different things to different people. You see that really frequently, don't you? It's a very trope of Barcelona players to say we, we were the attacking team because we had 60% of the possession after a game that they've mm-hmm. typically lost 1-0, isn't it? They, they will always come out and say that. And that's instilled in sort of Cloyfian to the, to the players. I mean, there's so many um, tangents to this, I think. But I mean, the, the one I'd pick up is I feel that, um, having got to know Graham, that his, his football is a bit caricatured. Um, because of his time with England. And there's a fascinating subplot to that, I think, because, um, so just to explain it, that uh, uh, Jonathan did, uh, people tended to think it was long ball, but Graham explains this in his autobiography, and I always felt this. They were they were trying to hit specific areas, and particularly the wings, because they, they had really gifted players in, in that team, like John Barnes. Nigel Callaghan, who people won't know as well, but was a really technical player. Kevin Richardson played when they came up, who's a very, very gifted technical midfielder. They were not the long ball team in your classic kind of, uh, I don't know, Republic of Ireland tradition whereby Liam Brady got dropped because he really wasn't didn't fit the pattern, you know. And I think people saw what Graham did. Well, to be, you know, Rob, even there, even there, I think Jack Charlton and, is... Yeah. Is, is, his tactical intelligence is overlooked. Yes, it's quite a pragmatic way of playing, but he was doing the same thing. And he, he had was saying, Houghton, give the ball to, to our fullbacks. Yeah, but give the ball to our fullbacks. Yeah. Because our, our fullbacks have got time because of the way the four four two tend to match up, and let them hit these long balls either down down the channel or, or hit the diagonal, and let's pin them in, into their into their corners. Let's put pressure on their fullbacks, because in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, fullbacks were not used to being under pressure. So there, there's something of there's something of Klopp about Jack Charlton, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, it's I, a, Jack's probably what well, I was thinking more of. So the, the immediate successor to Graham at Watford is Dave Bassett, and I think Dave Bassett brings the Wimbledon crazy gang. Um, kind of aggression to the long ball game, and the long ball became associated with aggression and, like, um, you know, often um, gamesmanship. And you'd see that, say, with Neil Warnock, wouldn't you? But Graham was a very great. Watford were always top of the fair play league or second, I think, sort of behind. Um, you know, but they, they were very. Graham was a very, very sort of. Um, had a very clear idea how the game would be played and, and fouling and, and, and sneaky behaviour definitely wasn't part of it. And and I I I always thought Graham was a much smarter tactician than he was getting credit for because obviously his England days and being turnipped by the papers. Um and what Ollie explained Ollie Phillips, a Watford Observer correspondent, was very close to Graham, obviously. And people won't appreciate this if you if you're not in the London dynamic, but in Watford, you feel completely out of the London bubble. You might as well be in Newcastle in Wales. So all the London press congregated around places like QPR and Arsenal. And QPR is very close to um my paper, the mail. Um and so Jeff Powell was a big friend of um Terry Venables at the time was a very influential journalist and Graham was really riled by Jeff Powell because um, Ollie was saying he he claimed that even in, you know, Jeff would be writing about um, Nottingham Forest against, you know, um, Sunderland or something and, and he'd get in a little digging the Graham Taylor to his match ball saying, oh, at least Forrester playing proper football, <laughs> not in the Watford style. And I, I'd, I'd like to speak to Jeff about this because obviously he's a colleague and we'd, we'd lovely to get his perspective on that. But that this is what Ollie said, what, what Graham felt. Um, was going on and, and a lot of the, the, the Terry was very good with the press um, and would have a lot of 
pals there. And Graham never felt he had that. He was an outsider, which was ironic because, as Jonathan said, his father had been a journalist and, and he knew how the press worked. Um, and so I think that really, Graham really felt that when he became England manager, that, that he was always up against it, that he was part of the... Um, we might call it he wasn't part of the urban elite who's more provincial, which I know most people think Watford's part of a London, but it doesn't just doesn't work like that because it's a little bit far out. and It's much easier to get to a press conference at QPR or Tottenham than it was at Watford. And and they were the they were sort of the country boys coming up from nowhere. No one bothered with Watford, even Ollie said, until we finally won. A, when we won promotion, I, he, the Daily Express had rung him up and said, oh, can you do a colour piece? But he said no one was really paying us any attention. They were sort of hoping I think that they would go away. And then obviously, eventually, they had to pay attention to them because they were challenging Liverpool for the title. Yeah, Jonathan, I mean, we, we're we talking about these, these you know, great English coaches in, in an era that wasn't that long ago, you know, you think about it. Uh, I mean, and also Luton Town, previously mentioned David Pleat, won the league that year with, with 88 points. There was there was a bit of um, innovation or re-innovation going on, perhaps you could say, with, with tactics. And this is the second tier of English football we're talking about here, with with these two teams in this in this particular season. And and you've mentioned, but you know, yourself and Rob have mentioned you know, Klopp, Klopp and, and and Guardiola and all these these kind of names. The wider context. Do you think though that that this era of of English football was sort of slightly overlooked within England? And do you think that perhaps th- this kind of coaching and uh, the, the, the tactical nous that's going on was was slightly, um, I suppose it it was sort of slightly missed going forward with with some managers because when you think of the classic English manager now, you might think of the likes of Harry Redknapp and so on, who of course not tactically inept, but one could say they're more about uh, man management that kind of thing, you know. Uh, yeah, so I, I think there's two different things, two different things going on there, Marcus. I, th- I think the first one is. Um, it is a simple financial issue that the gulf between the second division and, and the top division was nowhere near mm-hmm. as, as as vast. So you know, now um, a manager going up from a championship into the Premier League, they know that when they get up there, mm-hmm. they're going to have to um, adjust how they play, and they're going to be playing you know against a stacked deck. And so you know, even though something like Chris Wilder has obviously done done brilliantly and do, actually doing. Mm-hmm. Incredibly innovative and interesting things at Sheffield United. It's still problematic, and, and there's a there's a whole number of coaches who you see who who take a team up, and then they you know their, their reputation is is sort of ruined in in the space of six months because they're getting battered by by teams of much greater resources. And so something like I don't know, Aidy Boothroyd, I think had he been around sort of twenty five thirty years earlier, mm-hmm. might be regarded with slightly more respect in England than, than he is. So I think that's one issue. But I think the other, and this is where, again, I, I think the perception of Graham Taylor is, is slightly misleading, is that we're about to go into the the Charles Hughesification of English football. Um, so Charles Hughes became FA Technical Director uh, end of the 70s. I'm not sure exactly when. Um, and he he's a... I mean, he's still alive. Um, he's a slightly odd, very litigious man, so we should be very careful what we say. Um, <laughs> but he he sort of always suggested that uh, Graham Taylor was working from his blueprint. And he, he wrote a series of coaching manuals in, in his role at the FA, the first two of which don't really focus on uh, long ball football at all. And the third one, uh, which is called The Winning Formula, which is still still knocks about today incredibly and it's a terrible book it's an absolutely awful book um not necessarily in the coaching drills 
which which you may, may well be of use. But in the sort of pseudoscience in which they're dressed, that he he analyzes um, you know, a tiny number of goals and draws. I, you know, I think one of his big conclusions comes from looking at seventy seven goals in England internationals over a three or four year period. Well, of course, that's nothing. That's that's not enough to draw any conclusions. Um, and, and the conclusions he draws are fallacious. Um, but he he always argued that, that Taylor was sort of part of his school. Taylor's point was the only contact he ever had with Charles Hughes was when Taylor was England under-18 coach very briefly and that Hughes may have picked up some ideas from him. Hughes also, I think, learned a lot from Charles Reap, who was the... Sort of the, the the father or the grandfather of or the godfather, some kind of father of, <laughs> of statistical analysis in English football, and it's not the odd man in that he he'd he'd been in the RAF, he'd been based at Bushy Park during the war. He, he became very close uh, to to Stan Cullis when he, when Wolves were winning titles. Uh, he worked with Brentford. Uh, he, he he got some ideas from from Arsenal. I think initially when when Arsenal kind of were quite a direct side immediately after the war. Uh, but he, he he would go along to Swindon to the county ground wearing um, a miner's helmet with a lamp on the front, so he could take notes in the you know the back of the stand in the dark. Uh, so in many ways, sort of quite a pioneer and quite an impressive figure, but unfortunately, a real sort of zealot. And he he worked with with, with Graham Taylor, uh, and I, I think he he said that for a while Taylor would ring him up regularly, and then they formalised the agreement. And so I think it's this season, I think it's 81 2. Um, there was, was sort of one of his, uh, what's the word, sort of acolytes or somebody he'd sort of trained up. Um, he, he, was a, he was an archaeology student from, from the University of Lancaster. Uh, his, na- his name, Hartley was his name, Rich, Richard Hartley, something Hartley. Um, and he sent him to, to work with, with Watford. Um, and according to Reap, although Taylor has no recollect, had no recollection of this, he got paid six grand for this. Uh, but then they fell out in the summer of '82, and um, uh, Reap's recollection or Reap's version of the story was they they fell out over money that Taylor, having got promoted, didn't want to keep paying him or didn't want to pay him as much. Taylor's recollection was they had a falling out over a really minor technical point. In, in the way Reap analysed games. So Reap was obsessed by these things he called reaches, which was a number of times he played the ball into the opposition final third. Uh, so Watford that season, they played the ball into the final third 156 times on average per game. And they set a record against Chelsea that February uh, with 202. That record was subsequently taken by John Beck's Cambridge, which we refer to in the in the podcast we were with, with Max Rushton. Um, and he was encouraging Taylor, you want to increase that number. 156 is good, but it could be better. And I think when Wolves won the league under Cullis, it had been over 180. And Taylor said, yes, but we win the ball back in the final third, which surely is, is the same thing as playing the ball in there. In some ways, it's even better because we're then catching the opposition defence when they're, when they're not set. And Reap couldn't accept that. And so Taylor's version of the story is they fell out over that, which I think says... It's very much sort of in Reap's character to fall out over something so totally and that, trivial. That's so directly in, <laughs> uh, in and they never work together Klopp. again. That's the Jurgen Klopp thing about winning the ball. I mean, everyone does it now, don't mm. they? But I mean, Jurgen would go on and on about that. It's a direct line between Graham and Jurgen Klopp that to win the ball back high up the pitch is the best thing you can possibly do. Yeah, the best playmaker mm. is Gagan pressing. Yeah. Klopp's famous line. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but anyway, so I, I think Taylor's reputation and suffers because Charles Hughes, uh, yeah, 
with a very sort of unsophisticated version of what Taylor was doing, a, a sort of yeah. version of it which saw the stats but didn't really understand what they meant. And I think that does really, I mean, the, the terrible irony for Taylor is twofold, which is he reaps that harvest in that he has the, the least talented, least technically gifted bunch of England players probably ever in the early 90s. Uh, because they've all come through this this coaching program, which has told them just whack it to the back post. You know, it's not about skill. Uh, and also, who's the manager who undoes him in in that World Cup qualifying campaign? Mm. It's Egil Olsen. He mm. was this sort of long ball devotee, played yeah. the ball into the the back rom, that space behind the opposition defence. Who himself was paying or was was in regular consultation with Charles Reap. So to totally get stiff from both sides and neither of them are really his fault. I mean I do think Graham with England was was not he was neither fish nor foul. I think he was inhibited, wasn't he, to play how he really wanted to play because because of the likes of the the, the press and what he felt. And obviously Terry was always the sort of king across the water as it were, waiting to to take his crown and a lot of those um press guys were very close to Terry and, and and Ollie said that Graham Graham felt that greatly. I think he felt very isolated as England manager, sort of that he was as I say, the the provincial. Um but what I'm interested in when when I was reflecting on this, you know, that that I grew up with these two great tactical minds sort of filling me up with ideas. Didn't do me much good, but you know, at least I was there at that while also was going in. Uh, on and and I do wonder, to pick up Marx's point, whether English football at some point lost its way about thinking about the game. Um, you know, maybe with the advent of the Premier League, it does feel that, um, um, you know, that that once Graham and Terry had reached their peak and obviously before them had been obviously the more man managers, but still tactically astute managers like Paisley and, and Clough, that... that you know, once we're falling into the year where Svenja and Eriksson is for succeeding Kevin Keegan as England manager, that where did we stop thinking about the game? I think we've got it back now, and I think it, it has a research. There's been a resurgence, but um, mm. was Graham accidentally to blame for that because he, he, everyone reduced what he did into like, well, just knock it long and just knock it into the corner flag and hope for the best? Well, I, I think it's actually much more specifically Charles Hughes's fault. Mm. That yeah, he's writing this this manual, which is how coaches were were taught in England, which is sort of perverting Graham's ideas into this very basic sort of um, you know very superficial way of playing, and uh, you know uh, and alongside that you get the Heysel ban, which means that English clubs you know aren't playing top level European football. They're, they're not part of that um, transfer of knowledge you naturally get by playing against you know. What Graham said about playing Sparta Prague, he learned from that, but he had to play Sparta Prague to learn it. Uh, and, and once you take away that competition, you, you get this this you know this this uh, you know, twofold attack. One of the sort of roots are being attacked by by Hughes's philosophy, but also there's none of that organic learning because you're not, you're not regularly mixing with the European elite. And then when it, when we come back in the early nineties, um, your Graham's in this. I, you know, I think you're right. I think he 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 was sort of caught between two stools. He's also in this terrible position of he's taking over after the best English World Cup campaign since 1966, and so of course he can't go in and revolutionise it because it appears things are going quite well. Uh, but then the you know the players who are coming through and are not at the same level. He had all the issues with Gaza and his off-field problems and his injuries that he couldn't use Gaza in the same way. Uh, Gary Lineker, who'd obviously been so essential in both 86 and 90. Uh, has the toe injuries is is not quite the force that he was and and you know, ends up retiring very young. There's a you know there's a whole a huge amount of of misfortune there, and then I think English football basically loses faith with itself, and it doesn't really appreciate that Liverpool, Forest, Villa, 
were winning European Cup playing aggressive, physical, but also tactically intelligent, astute football. Yeah. And there was a sense that, oh, yeah, all we do is sort of play 4-4-2, lump it long. No, Forest, Villa, Liverpool were a lot more, Everton were a lot more than that. And but yeah, we we sort of lost the faith in what we did well. And actually, I think Klopp's return mm. or Klopp Klopp's arrival has sort of returned us to that. And one of the things Klopp said in that very first press conference when he was asked about his influences, you know, he talked about Wolfgang Frank. He talked about the sort of Schwabian school of pressing. But he said, you know, the team that really excited me growing up was watching watching the great Liverpool, watching how they, you know, they they pinned opponents back because that Liverpool side, although they were very capable of holding the ball and back passes and the offside trap. When they pressed, they really pressed. I think I think the the great disservice that Shankly and Paisley did us was was they'd always take the piss out of tactics, wouldn't they? And they were the ones who derided it. And I'm <laughs> I'm sure they did that because they thought very hard about the game. They didn't want anyone else thinking about it. I think it was a bluff, to be honest. But because they would say very rude things about tactics, and and Clough was the same. That that a whole generation of coaches maybe grew up thinking that was actually true, and there was absolutely no need to think about the the, the game. But it's certainly true that. Forest and Liverpool mm. and, and and that Villa side were, were smart tactically. Just just yeah. Brilliant. I mean, I, I think I think with with Shankly, I think with Shankly, the, the the I think he maybe wasn't a great tactician, but he had Paisley, who absolutely categorically was a great mm. tactician. So Paisley could do the tactics in the background, and Shankly could do the the front man and kind of get everybody motivated and bring the crowd along. So I think with Shankly, maybe it wasn't the bluff. But Clough, you're right, is a really interesting case that I think Clough almost didn't know what he was doing. He didn't he didn't realize the way he thought about the game was tactical, although he obviously had Peter Taylor, who was, to an extent, the Paisley figure for him. But, you know, there's that story when they play Liverpool in the European Cup and they go to Anfield and, you know, they win it 2-0. And Archie Gemmell says, just just as they're about to go out of the dressing room at Anfield, Clough says to him, Archie plays a right-back today. Well, that's, what's that? That's tactics. But also, you know, Clough, Clough didn't like sort of the minute preparation, but what he was brilliant at was team building. He built, you know, he, he bought a team that fitted together. So... You, ha- you can have John Robertson on the left, you know, not really working particularly hard, being quite languid, because you've got Frank Clark doing a very dogged job behind him. And then you balance that by having Martin O'Neill or Archie Gemmell tucking on the right with Viv Anderson bombing around the outside on the overlap. You know, th- those things balance, they compensate for each other. Clough clearly understood that. That's why he bought those players to go together. I think there's yeah, this, an... you can do tactics in you know in the in the grand strategic sense, which was why I think he was he was brilliant at, and you can also do it in the in the minute day to day sense, which he he perhaps neglected a bit. To, to bring this story together, I think there's a really um, you mentioned Graham had a poor generation to work with, which I think to a certain extent is true. You know, in some of those England teams, you see that you know that that they put out they they were really bereft of quality players but of course the great if you the, the narrative for the Terry supporters in the press would be that once Terry got hold of these players they would be able to play and of course I think that's why the Holland game the, the 4-1 win at Wembley over Holland and obviously that the almost might have been um, semi-final mm-hmm. against Germany in Euro 96 which is now being re-shown on telly um, so maybe we can re-evaluate it um, were, were Terry's great sort of vindications like well I always said these players could play well I mean I think obviously he was then benefiting from People like Shearer coming through, and Gary Neville would have come through at right back. Steve McManaman. There was a, a, a new group um, of players who, who who were probably better than the ones a few years ago, weren't they? But but that that would be Terry's argument that oh well, give me the players, let them play, and they will play. And the great betrayal for the for Fleet Street or Terry loving Fleet Street was um, that the FA didn't renew his contract after 1996, and they let him go. And then then obviously Glenn. 
kind of takes over that Glenn Hoddle took over that you know was still in the passing tradition but um obviously he never had the press on side in the way that Venables did partly because that that's his manner I mean I know Glenn pretty well and I like him but he you know he he doesn't have the same comfortable manner that Terry has and also um that no one really ever forgave sort of Terry's successor for for not being Terry I think so there was always that (laughs) slight difficulty uh, with Glenn and then once Glenn Hoddle goes I think that's where we lose our passing I think this is where it's important mm. the whole story becomes important it's like what what happens between English football between sort of um, 2000 and and you know really up to you know, quite recently you could argue 2016 mm. although I might might exempt Roy Hodgson from that um, we sort of lose lose our way in terms of um, well believing in our coaching obviously because we appoint foreign managers and um and, and not really knowing what what our style of play is, and I, and I think that's the interesting thing. It's like what happened to the Venables and the Taylor proteges. Why 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 weren't there more of them? I guess Steve McLaren would would have fitted into that normally, but then you know it goes all wrong for him. But that that that's the interesting part of the story. I think is like you know as you say in, in the lower tiers of English football, it's a really fascinating philosophical debates going on tactically and, and then somehow English football loses that and now I think I agree that with Klopp's return we, we, we've sort of recovered or with Gagan Preston being a thing we've kind of recovered you know a way of playing and, and a tactical sort of way of thinking yeah well we'll uh, we'll leave it on that positive note then that hopeful note Rob uh, that hopefully that, uh, that, you know, the English football can get uh, more of its soul back, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Rob. It's been uh, fascinating hearing you and obviously Jonathan yourself too, talking about tactics and so on and so forth. And for more stories like this, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. But Rob, thank you very much for coming on the pod. It's been a pleasure thank having you with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it. Not at all. Thank you, Jonathan, of course. And we will be back next week with another great game from football history. See you then. This was a Stakhanov production. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.